One of my um, professor heroes, who I'll mention again at the end of this lecture, actually, he gets his own slide. That's how much I like him. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Jim Baird uh, once told me that uh, arguing on Facebook is not actually a spiritual gift listed in the New Testament. <laughs> For a lot of us, engaging the culture means having like rabid, foaming-at-the-mouth arguments, and that's the only way we know how to deal with this discontinuous world, this world that doesn't seem to line up with the way it's supposed to be in our head. And so we're trying to figure out how to engage the culture. And so what I want to do today is, first of all, give you some guide. Well, first I want to say, is it worth time to engage the culture? So one strategy would be, don't do it, right? So first I want to answer the question, do we need to engage the culture? And then second, uh, in this lecture, I want to try to give you, as much as time permits, five guidelines or ground rules for engaging the culture as a Christian as we, we enter this world that we do find somewhat strange compared to our Christian convictions. Um, so first question then is, why bother? If the transcendent sacred world is superior to the temporal, uh, secular world, why should the Christian bother with our secular age? And let me just say, through Christian history, there have been a lot of Christian folk who say maybe we shouldn't. Okay, um, I, I have a deep sympathy in my heart for the monastic tradition. Uh, there's, there's part of me that would be perfectly happy in a monastery, and I'd never have to leave, and there's lots of books and coffee, and, and well, that's it. What, do you see? what else do you need? And I don't need to know what's going on in the world, and that would be great. Part of me says that would be great, like a really big part of me. I'm thinking about it again right now, kind of think of it. Part of me thinks that would be like the ideal scenario. But it turns out, I think, that Christians have overwhelmingly concluded that's not a legitimate option for a couple of reasons. I'll, I have some scripture on the screen I'll just mention quickly, and then we'll slow down in some scripture we'll get to a little later. But just in passing, when you read the Bible, right up front, there is something that's commonly called in, in kind of the Protestant world the cultural mandate. And what we mean by that is that humanity was given a task, and I, and I appreciate Todd's comments, a, a task beyond getting out of here to the next place, right? A tax beyond just getting to heaven or getting out of hell. There is actually a job to do that is described in different ways, but if you read it in Genesis chapter 1, 26, 28, 2 and verse 15, it sounds something like take dominion, subdue, uh, tend a garden. Humanity starts out as a gardener, right? That something about taking the world that God has made and handed off to us and bringing some kind of order to it. Bringing, uh, another expression that's in those passages is be fruitful and multiply. Not just multiply, but actually be productive in multiplying. To do something with what God has given us. <clears throat> to maintain it, but not just to maintain it. And this, this is a, a borderline heretical thought, but to improve upon it. And you say, well, improve something God did. He made it so you could work on it. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he gave. It's not that he did a bad job and we have to fix it. It's that he built it with us in mind to give us something to do. And so part of that is do something with it. Here's a world. Do something with it. Well, that's culture. Right? That part of that is culture. It's ordering things, making laws and structuring society and raising families. That's all flourishing. That's all fruitfulness. That's all dominion and, and so forth. That's gardening. Right? That is tending the world that God has made. And so they, uh, 
we do a terrible job of that, right? We did, we did a fantastic job, such a great job that God said, let's start over. And so he wipes the whole thing out, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, right? And what is the first set of instructions he gives the people that come out of the boat? Do it again, right? Go back and try again. Not give up. You're terrible at this, uh, which would have been a pretty true statement. But rather, uh, go do it again, right? Be fruitful, be multiplying, flourish and be productive and bring order to this world. And it's going to be a struggle, but you should be doing it. Then you fast forward to uh, the time of Christian literature in First Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians 10 and verse 5. Paul uses an expression that I find uh, very important. He says that one of the tasks we have in reconciling the world to God is to take every thought captive. That everything we're thinking, and I love, again, the expression earlier, that we're not just thinking things. We're more than thinking things, but we're also not less than thinking things. We're, we're a complicated little bundle of things, us humans, right? But one of the parts of us that God wants to have as his own is what we think. Our values, our virtues, our characteristics, our practices, all are going to be brought captive and made subject to God. And that's how the world is being reconciled to him. Well, that sounds like culture to me, right? What people are uh, painting pictures of, what people are writing songs about, what people are writing movies about, the things we think right? That's part of who we are as a society. I'm reading a book right now on uh, intergenerational ministry that's kind of fascinating, and it's talking about the different generations that are in your church. And it's a big, long chapter on each generation. And one thing I think is interesting is this particular author ends every chapter by saying, let me summarize that generation, and then he gives you the most popular song from that generation. And it tells you, like, everything you want to know about them, Right? Um, if, you're a, if you're a boomer, uh, it's going to be times they are changing, right? And it's going to tell you this, this is what it is, right? And, and, or Gen X, you're going to have this song, right? And, and that's, that's who we are. It's how we think. There's that embeddedness of that art and culture. So quick answer then, should we bother? Yes, that's the job God gave us, is to mix in with how people think, how people live, to be bringing order to the chaos of the universe that's one of the jobs God has given us, and I don't think we have an option of passing that up and saying, well, I need a gospel of sin management, and there's a Dallas Willard phrase, a gospel of sin management, I just need to get out of here as quick as possible and get to heaven. That's not what God made humanity to do. Never mind Christians. It's not what God made humans to do, and certainly not Christians. Okay, so to make then a reference to a passage that was referenced earlier, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we're going to have to get involved with the culture. That was slide one. How do we do that without starting to take on the faults and flaws of the culture that we're trying to improve upon? Right? How do we do that? Uh, to make a household reference, how do, you, how do you clean up a mess without getting messy? Right? How do you clean a mud puddle? Parents, if you had the kids come in and you look at them and you think there's no place to start. Right? <laughs> there's not even a handhold that I can get a hold of. And so you just throw them back out and you get the garden hose and you just say, whatever, strip down. We're in the country. And you just you try the best you can because it's, it's not feasible to get them clean without making everything they touch dirty. 
That's the world we live in. There's, one, there's a kid underneath there that you love. There's not an option. Nope, I'm done with you. You're dirty, right? <laughs> I tried that. Celine says it's not allowed. You have to let them back in the house eventually. They don't clean themselves. So what do you do? There's a kid under there you love. So you mix in. And you know what happens? You do sometimes get dirty in the process. It happens. But it's worth salvaging. Okay. So how do Christians engage the, the culture? Let me give you some ground rules. Rules of engagement. Here are the rules. I'm trying to give you five, best I can. Number one, uh, nonconformity. So start with a ground rule that's probably the hardest, is that we engage without becoming. Well, if you have your Bible, and I'm hoping you might, uh, be in a church and all, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. Let me just read this kind of at, at length. And then pause and comment a little bit. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And I think it's a great example because it is Paul talking to a church in Ephesus that was in a, a culture very different than anything Paul had ever learned about, right? He, it's not, not a good Jewish community that he grew up in. This is Ephesus. This is a strange world. And he's also telling them how not just to be Jewish, that's not the plan, but to be this group of Christians made into the image of Christ, which is its own problem. So how do we do that? Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship." created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I think there's two extremes in churches that exist today that are pretty prevalent. And, of course, there's lots of gray in between, but two basic extremes. You have some culture, uh, churches that want to engage the values of the culture by mostly adopting them, where the church essentially becomes just the chaplain of the culture. They're going to christen the boat and say, go to war. I mean, go, go do whatever you want to do. Uh, you want same-sex marriage, we'll have same-sex marriage. You, want to do, you pick a topic, whatever the value of the culture is, we're going to adopt it in order to be relevant and meaningful in this culture. That's one extreme. The other extreme is the kind of isolationist model where I don't want to know what's good. This is the monastic plan, right? I'm going to pray, and I'm going to be here, and I'm going to be on my own, and I'm not going to be involved in that in any way. And what Paul demonstrates in this passage is uh, that neither of those extremes make any sense. Okay? Because, number one, you have to recognize the course of this world is fallen. Okay? The church does not exist in the world in order to become the world. You can't outworldly the world, right? The goal is not to get better at worldliness in the world. And some of our churches have tried that. I don't think it works. Okay? The world's better at being worldly than we are. Uh, the world is fallen top to bottom. The whole kid is messy. Everything's muddy. And I mean that 
that is a staggering thought that you should stew on sometime. The whole world has fallen. There is not a single facet or component of human life that has not been touched by sin in some way. And sin is not just a debt that goes on your bank account. It is a damaging contagion. It makes less and makes worse everything it touches. It changes how we feel. It changes how we think. It rolls down the hill like a snowball and gathers steam, and it gets, it's a struggle, right? And so there's nothing in this culture that has not been touched by it, which means that there is nothing in this culture that the church can accept uncritically, that we can just say, yeah, that looks good over there. Let's transplant it right over here without thought. Because everything that exists in the culture has in some way been touched by sin. Okay? The course of this world is dead. And we were that. And so, first observation then about this is that we need to be critically examining everything about us. Because we all, we don't walk in here and like transform into saints at the back door. Right? That we bring with us everything we are, even the stuff that Paul says, hey, that's dead. Right? It all kind of comes with us in a bundle. And we have to look at all of it and say, you know, what, what is it that I have to reimagine, rethink? What affection do I have to change? What habit that I've done my entire life has to go away or be reimagined or altered? Maybe something, maybe the habit stays the same, but how I think about it changes. Or maybe what I think stays the same, but the habit changes, right? But everything has to be reimagined. Nothing's off limits, okay? Everything has to be considered, even most basic assumptions. But that said, we are graciously renewed and remade and resurrected by God. There is a baby underneath all that mud. There is your precious child, parents. And so you don't throw them all out, right? That there is something at the core of the human experience that God made, that God wants and that God has sent his son to redeem. And so the challenge then of this passage and the Romans 12 passage is to recognize the value in the culture, but not accept uncritically any part of the culture. To consider every facet of it without distancing ourselves from all of it as if it's all uh, helpless and without worth. Art is beautiful. Music is wonderful. Business and enterprise. Your wood shop. I mean, whatever it is, all of these things have worth in God's world. But none of them can be accepted uncritically. Okay? So step one is nonconformity. Value it without embracing it uncritically. Have convictions without condescension. And take a look at the world for what it is. Ask in everything you do... How would a Christian do this? This is something I'm trying to talk to young people about, and I find it to be a challenge, but they're very curious about the question, right? We tell them, uh, there's your Christian life, and then you go get a job. And the harder question is, how would a Christian be a cashier at that grocery store? How would a Christian be a doctor? How would a Christian be a public school teacher? And if your answer is not in some way different than how would a non-Christian do that, then you probably need to think about it some more. If it's not in some way the same, 
then you're being silly, right? <laughs> in some way, the Christian cashier is going to look like the non-Christian cashier. I hope they make change the same, right? I mean, I hope $10 is still $10. Otherwise, if there's different math, I've got real problems. But something had better be different. And that has to be true in every aspect of life. How is a Christian husband different? How is a Christian a wife? How is a Christian a parent? How is a Christian an artist or a songwriter? How is a Christian a novelist? Okay. Whatever it is you do, how does a Christian do that? Rule of engagement number one, nonconformity. Number two, deep listening. Acts chapter 7. What a fun chapter. You don't mind if I spend the next three days in Acts chapter 17. I said 7, I'm sorry, I meant 17. Acts 17. Acts chapter 17. It, it would take me a while to say everything I want to say about Acts 17. I've got kind of philosophical bent, and it's all about philosophy, and there's fun stuff going on. <sighs> I can't do it. Okay. Acts 17. Paul's going to make his way to Athens. You want to talk about culture? We're in Athens. This is where culture is born. For the Western civilization, this is the heart of every heritage we want to hearken back to. Okay. Well, here he is. And you can go up to the hill where the people are gathered to talk about great ideas. This is cultural Mecca before there was Mecca. Right? This, this is it. This is the place, the center of it. Acts 17.22. Let me give read a big section and then pause and make some comments. Acts 17.22 through 31 reads as follows. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having, deter uh, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we move and live and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by an art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Magnificent sermon, completely different from every other sermon in the book of Acts. Everywhere else in Acts, Paul's you know, in a synagogue somewhere and he says, Did not Moses also say, our fathers said, David said in this passage, never quotes a passage from the Old Testament. Never uses the word Christ. Try that sometime. Preach a sermon about Jesus and never use the word Christ. Why? Because Christ is Messiah, and the Greek mind doesn't know what a Messiah is. So he says, Lord, a resurrected man, but he doesn't use any Jewish terminology because he's not talking to a Jewish crowd. Paul is doing a fascinating job of deep listening he has paid attention to what's going on around him and now knows how to speak to it. Look at a couple of the details. 
First of all, he talks where the people are talking. There's a hill up there where people are talking about ideas. So that's where Paul's going to be. Okay? Christians have nothing to fear from discussion. Nothing at all. And if there are people talking about ideas, I want to be right there in the midst of it. We're going to have to, uh, this is a whole other sermon, but we're going to have to change our ideas a little bit about our worship. Uh, we have this idea because we are kind of revivalist groups, right, that we get together on Sunday so people can wander in and we can save them. Right? I don't think that's the plan. Uh, worship is where Christians are formed and developed and shaped as they worship their God. But it's in places like this hilltop where we go and we talk about the gospel to people who just haven't thought of it this way before. And we're going to have to find those places. And I don't know where they are. Okay? I don't know where the hilltop is in LaGrange. I don't know where it is in Glenpool. Right? I, I, we have to find those places. They kind of crop up in funny spots. So one day Paul goes down to the river because there's women down there praying. He's like, oh, there's a spot. People are praying. I'll go there. He'll go anywhere. But we on the lookout for places where there are opportunities. Number two, we know the religio of the culture. Catch that phrase. He says, you're very um, religious. <laughs> right? He knows they have devotion. He is aware of it. He knows their values and their accepted ideas, their philosophy. He's aware of it. He doesn't say, well, I don't know what y'all are doing, but you're wrong. Right? That's a bad sermon. Instead, he says, let me, let me talk to you. I noticed this on the way in. Here are some things I've observed. He's even aware of some of their deep philosophical ideas. At this particular moment in Greek philosophical history, the idea of gods as personal beings or material beings had kind of fallen out of fashion. And Paul makes a reference to, you know, God isn't made of wood and stone and gold and silver. And people said, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. So he's aware of the kind of thinking of what's going on in the culture and makes reference to it. He recognizes the need of the culture. Okay. He says, you know, I, I know this. You've got this uh, particular altar here. You acknowledge that there may be more about God than what you know. I want to say you're right. And I want to talk to that deep need that you have to pursue this knowledge. God wants you to pursue this knowledge, to feel after him. I think a better translation of that Greek term there would be to grope. It's, it's a word for what you do in the dark when you don't want to turn the light on and you stub your toe. That's the word used here. It's the God wants you to kind of reach after him. And he says, let me, let me help you out a little bit. You're on the right path. He is conversant in the culture. He's not quoting Moses. Who's he quoting? They're poets. They're poets. Pagan poets. One of these phrases comes from a meteorology book. How's that for fun? Ancient Greek meteorology on display here. Uh, one of these quotations comes from a book about Zeus. He's conversant in it. He quotes it. And then he steals it, right? I mean, he's a Christian, so he's not going to leave it there. He's not talking about Zeus. He's going to say, well, that's true, but, right? But he's conversant in the culture. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what people are talking about. He's aware. doesn't have fingers in his ears, right? He is listening to what's going on. And he's happy. Wherever the culture says something that is worth repeating, he'll repeat it. He says, one of your own poets said this. He's right. This is true. 
and he's conversant in it. Uh, one of the old theologians said that uh, the gospel preacher has to have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Right? You've got to be conversant in what's going on. You've got to be aware and be able to speak to the moment. And then number five, he does speak the gospel into the culture. Uh, again, talk about extremes. There are extremes in our churches on both sides of this. Some churches want to only speak of the culture, and they never get to the gospel part. And then some folks want to talk about the gospel, but never talk about what's going on in the culture. Paul does both really well. But at the end, he comes back around to the gospel. And he doesn't even compromise it. This, I don't know if we appreciate how gutsy a move this is. Paul knows, because he's conversant in the culture, that the idea of a resurrected person is going to be an absurd idea to a Greek audience. He has whittled the gospel down to the bare essentials. He's not quoting Moses. He's not even using the word Christ. He's made it as simple as he can. But what can't he do? He can't drop the resurrection of the dead. That's non-negotiable. So at the end, he says, the world will be judged by the man that has been raised from the dead. That's the gospel. Okay? There are components of the gospel that are simply non-negotiable. There are things that we can't say, well, to kind of fit in with the culture, we've got it not allowed. We listen deeply. We find what they'll understand. We hear what they're saying, and then we find ways to ultimately speak Christian convictions into those discussions. Great example of this, uh, beginning of last year, there was an interview with uh, Timothy Keller. It's in the New York Times. Wonderful article. And they interviewed Tim Keller, who's the pastor at the Redeemer, or was the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. Uh, so you talk about a guy engaging the culture. He's at a Presbyterian church in Manhattan, right? Not exactly the, the buckle of the Bible belt, right? And so he's engaging the culture, and they interview him. And the guy in the interview says, now listen, you're a pretty conservative Christian person. Uh, he says, if, do I have to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ from the dead as a literal event to be a Christian? And what's the pressure here? There's a guy, an intellectual opinion maker on the other side asking you a question. And Keller wants to engage the culture. He wants to do everything he can to answer that question. But what can't he do? He can't say, well, the resurrection don't matter, right? That's not an option. So what does he do? He says, can you imagine being a part of an environmental movement like Greenpeace, but denying global warming? Well, well, no, if you're going to be part of a group like that, you have to. He said, oh. Yeah. So he, he's aware of the culture and of the values that would be accepted. He says, are there groups that you would be supportive of that have principles and ideals that they hold to? And if you aren't able to agree to that set of ideas, you don't belong in that group? And the guy said, well, yeah. He says, Christianity has some of those too. And the resurrection of Jesus is one of them. I'm not going to tell you you're not a Christian, but I'm going to tell you that Orthodox Christianity affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it always has and it always will. He says you can't be a member of the NRA and oppose um, guns, right? I mean, there's just, there, are, there are groups that have ideas and values. Christianity is one of those. Hear what he did? He took something out of the headlines of the times, right, out of the culture, and then used that as a way to express a basic Christian conviction.
Beautiful interview. Masterful. Okay, number three, the steel man principle. I've, I've come to love this one. Uh, I have to remind, remind myself of it and be reminded because it's a lot more fun and entertaining to take the silliest version of your opponent's argument and poke holes in it, right? You can become an a Internet celebrity by ranting about the silliness of other people's ideas, right? Uh, this, is, this is all that people do on the news, right? Is <laughs> you get people saying, well, you guys believe this, and then you guys believe, and they argue back and forth, and no one actually talks about what anybody believes. Uh, doing that is sometimes called the straw man fallacy, where I can't argue with you, so I'm going to construct a little straw man, a man of straw, a scarecrow, and I'll whip him all to pieces, right? Well, you Christians think the world is flat, you dummies, right? That's straw man. You're not actually arguing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're arguing with some idea that you probably don't hold anyway. I'm betting you don't think the world is flat. But you see what's going on there? See, I'm going to take something that I find silly and then attribute it to you and then argue with that. This is not helpful. If you want to engage the culture, instead of a straw man, engage a steel man. You want to find the superman of the thing that you're trying to discuss and argue about. This is challenging for Christians because of our virtues and our values. A lot of times we see something in the culture and we immediately recoil with disgust and say, ew, that's just weird. I'll give you an example. Christians have really struggled to talk about sexual ethics because when we talk about um, LGBTQ or whatever the discussion is, one of our reactions is disgust, right? Well, that's gross. <laughs> and we don't want to ask the questions that are being asked or listen to what's being said, our reaction is kind of a knee-jerk reaction of, well, no. I'm not saying our reaction is wrong. I'm saying how we're doing it is wrong. Makes sense? There is something wrong with the culture and its view of sexuality. Deeply wrong. Come back tomorrow morning from Bible class. I'll talk about that a little bit for like five minutes. Because um, Scott won't give me any time. But what we haven't done well is actually listen to the arguments. What you want to listen for is the best version of the other person's point of view. The point of view that is so well expressed that it just nearly convinced you. You want to dig in and suspend your disbelief for a minute. This is a practice that's very hard to do. Uh, and I don't necessarily always recommend it. But if you, could take, if, you, if you could take your Christian faith like a book and just set it on the shelf for a minute, it will still be there when I come back. But I want to think, if I were this person, how would I make their argument? If I believed this were true, how would I explain it to someone? And when I understand their point of view better than they do, then I get to speak. And don't say a word until you do. What we end up doing is we argue with misrepresentations, half-truths, and we just talk past each other. And we just argue. And this is how our culture engages in ideas. We post really funny memes. It's back and forth. You guys believe this. You guys believe this. Okay. But good discussion, culture-changing discussion, says I want to understand the best version of that idea. You can do this whether it's in you know, a philosophy class or with your friend at the lunch table. I mean, this is how it works. Okay? I'm serious. Real practice here. Practical as I get in a philosophy discussion. Okay? 
when you're discussing with somebody and they say something you disagree with, your first reaction is to say, you're wrong, right? Don't do that, okay? What I hear you saying is, and then repeat back to them what you thought they said. Okay? What normally happens, this is interesting, if you do that, what normally happens is they say, well, no, I didn't mean that. Right? Because either they didn't say it well, or you weren't listening properly, or both. Right? And so they explain it again to you. And guess what you do again? What I, okay, so what you're saying is, and not, maybe tone of voice matters here, not... So what you're saying is, that's not what I'm suggesting, right? Not, right? If, if you have to look down your nose to say it, don't say it, as a general rule. But what I hear you saying is, what, what it sounds like you're telling me is this. And you keep, if it takes 20 attempts, you keep doing it until they say, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And now you're ready to talk about Christianity. Right. Now you're ready to say, now I understand and you talk about what they actually believe, not the little image of it, the little parody that you made in your mind. Oh, you're just one of those people. Now listen to them. And a lot of times, they will tell you more than you could have guessed about their values and what they think, and it will become apparent. If you hold the Christian convictions and faith, it will become apparent to you where what they're saying is different than what Scripture teaches and how to talk about it. But we don't know how to have the conversation because we were never listening. Or we were only listening to a version of what they said. So when we're engaging the culture, whether it's over the lunch table, on the phone, on that social media stuff, you want to listen to the best version of what they have to say. Let me pause and let me just move ahead because I got one more point. I'm almost out of time. Uh, actually, I got two more points. Yeah, that'll work. No problem. First uh, John four one through six. Um, this one's more subtle, but it's worth mentioning. The Germans have given us a fun word. Uh, thank you, Germans, for this, and it's the word Zeitgeist. Um, and it means something like the spirit of the age. You can hear Geist is ghost, right? The spirit of the age. Um, that every age has kind of a, a mood. Every generation has kind of a set of values. That you really, it's hard to write down, but you just kind of get it. If you live in that culture, you just kind of, yeah, that's right. When I was talking about modernism or the Enlightenment or medieval, people in that age just kind of lived and they, yeah, that's it. And you get it. First John, um, well, I'm in First Peter, that's not going to do. First John chapter 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Uh, what I'm suggesting in this 
is be a little more analytic in your own thinking. I probably should have put this one before the talk to other people part. Before you're allowed to talk to anyone else, be a little more analytic in your own thinking. Question things about what you think. Like obvious, not even controversial things. Question obvious things. Now, you don't have to be Descartes. You don't have to end up in complete doubt of everything. Do I even exist? It's it's okay. You don't have to go quite that far. But asking a few questions about what you believe is worthwhile. Think a little bit. Okay? Politely question every assumption. Why do I think that's true? Um, I'm trying to think of like a really, really obvious one. Um, Technology is good. Most people don't argue with that. Okay, sure. Why do I think that's true? Well, sometimes it saves people's lives, right? Medical technology extends life. That's good, right? Why do I think that's true? Is living, well, they get to live longer, and that's better. Why do I think it's better to live longer? And, And you ask those questions, and sometimes it sounds silly, but you might surprise yourself by what you stumble across when you ask those questions. I did that a while back with that very chain of thought. And it led me to a study of the Christian view of death. And it led me to this question, why do I think it is better to live longer in every circumstance? Is humanity better off that we're living longer? Maybe. Maybe not. But it, it got me to thinking about some stuff, and I started studying, and I learned some things. And I still don't have any answers, but that's okay. Right? <laughs> My point is to you question the assumption, that those assumptions are just built in. This is good. We have to do it this way because of this. Why? That two-year-old who asks you why, that is the most beautiful question in the human language. Why? Why? And the reason we don't like it, because it's not fun to answer why questions, and it's hard. But it's important. At some point, we stop asking, and we shouldn't. So politely question every assumption. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't believe everything you hear. Don't believe everything that claims to be of spirit or spiritual or of some origin that's transcendent and unquestionable. Be aware of the lie. Folks, Scripture tells us, this is one of the things that I believe to be true, the devil is a liar, which means that this world has at its core a lie. And believing that lie is dangerous. What's the lie I'm being told today? What's underneath the surface of my own assumptions? That's not actually what God wants for the world. Begin with a central truth claim. Start with Jesus is Lord. That's, by the way, better than I think, therefore I am. Jesus is Lord. Start there, and then you can get to the other stuff, right? Start with that as your central claim. Believe in the superiority of Christ, and stop being surprised and outraged. And realize that you've been wrong about a lot of stuff, too. That's verses 5 through 6, by the way. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. I can't believe what I saw on the news yesterday. Why not? It was on the news. What did you think was going to be on the news? <laughs> Boring stuff? Today, Ben had oatmeal. No one reports that. Today, a Christian did normal Christian things. They might report that, but only if it gets somebody in trouble. Right? Stop being surprised. The world acts like the world. The problem is when Christians act like the world. That's the part that surprises us. It should. John says, yeah, of course it's the world. So ask the questions. Ask the tough questions. Final thought, and then I really do have to stop. I told you I'd start and end with Dr. Jim Baird, my personal mentor and hero. And he often gave us this advice. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. 
There is no method of engaging the culture that involves rudeness and condescension that is also Christian. When you look at the way Christian or Christ engaged people with whom he was diametrically opposed in value and conviction, you sometimes find severity, you always find truth, you always find little bits of kindness in unexpected places. He is never rude. Severe? Yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> never rude. He never intentionally insults people. He never demeans people. He talks about their actions and their choices and their values and their behaviors and their habits. But he treats them as human persons worthy of talking to. And then in case you weren't sure, he went ahead and died for them too. A sacrificial love that comes at the end of a sacrificial life. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. You will not change the culture by reinforcing the stereotype that Christians are mean-spirited bigots. Right? That's what they say we are. I don't believe it's true. Don't prove me wrong. Instead, Christians are conformed to the image of his dear son. And that's fundamentally different than the world has ever known. When they see that, it changes lives. And that is one of the ground rules for engaging the culture. So those five rules will get you a long way.